All right. Enough of that. <laughs> All that love going around. Okay, I'd like you to read scripture with me. We are, uh, we are embarking on about a, a six-part series uh, or so on, uh, on 1 Corinthians 13 on biblical idea or concept of love. And uh, for those of you who weren't with us last week, uh, what I've asked you to do is I've, I've actually asked that you would commit to, uh, whether it's you're able to be here or you watch online or you, 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 know, you download a podcast, whatever it is, and that you would listen and, and engage with us as we pursue a greater and a new capacity for love. I believe that the Lord has spoken over our church. I believe he's spoken to us, uh, particularly to me as a leader, as pastor, that the Lord is calling us not just to have more power, not just to have more experiences, but he has called us to move into a new level of his love and to have a greater capacity both to receive his love and also to give his love away. Because in, in, in some ways, people can deny power. They can deny miracles. Uh, I mean, we've seen that even here in our midst, some, some, some crazy, amazing miracles have taken place, and people have, have said, no, you must have been lying about your problem before. Uh, and so even, even in the midst of God showing up in power, sometimes people can still resist that. But the irresistible thing is the love of God. This, this people will follow you. If you are, are one who has great capacity for love, your family will follow you. If you have great capacity for love, the people you work with will follow you. Uh, you may never, I mean, I, I, I believe if you're filled with love, you're going to see healings and you're going to see miracles. But even if you didn't, if the greatest miracle of all is that any of us in this room really becomes an incredibly loving person, that we both are satisfied and fulfilled in the love we're receiving and we are pouring out love to others. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I think the most perfect picture of the, of the believer, the spirit-filled believer, is not that they become a factory where they're producing things, because that's kind of a little more like being a slave in some ways, a slave to performance, a slave to demands, all of these things. But rather, the picture of the spirit-filled believer, the, the Christ-life believer, is more like a warehouse. That, that, that you're called to receive, you're called to be filled, you're called to overflow, you're called then to distribute what you have. You cannot give away what you do not have. Paul, in talking about communion, says, what I have received from the Lord, I have passed on to you. I think that's the model of spirit filling, is that you can only give away what you have received. And if you're giving away something you've produced, well, you know, it's not that worthwhile. It's not worth that much. And it's why sometimes when we work and we work and we work and we try to give away and people don't value it, it's because it doesn't have value. But when you receive from the Lord and you have that which is eternal and that which is, is wonderful and beautiful and holy, it has eternal value. It has weight. It has the very weight of glory. And so as we read this together, as we 
study this together. And, and some of you, you may not be ready to do this with me, but I, I can tell you that if we go through this for six weeks together and we really surrender to the Lord and we yield ourselves to the Lord, you will have a greater capacity for both experiencing love and for giving love away because this is what the Lord wants to do. This passage in, in 1 Corinthians tells us that you could have all kinds of faith, but if you don't have love, it counts for nothing. As a matter of fact, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So if it's not expressing itself in love, it's not real faith. So we, we look at this passage and we go, okay, this is what God cares about. So this is what I care about. So let's read his word together. We're going to read seven verses. I'm going to read one through seven. So we're going to read it out loud because I like it when you read with me. I know you're still breathing. All right, so ready? Let's read this together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So as we look at this verse, these verses again, many of you, probably this is, should be a very famous passage for you because many times it's read at wedding ceremonies. It might have been read at your wedding ceremony. And people generally, when they hear it, they go, isn't that pretty? Until you actually study it and look at what it's saying, you realize this isn't pretty. This is a bombshell. This is, this is pretty heavy duty, what Paul is saying here. He is saying that if you are not living and experiencing and giving away agape love, not just affection, not just erotic love, not just a friendship kind of love, but if you're not giving and receiving and living in agape love, which is this, this God-sourced love that comes from the very heart of God and has sacrificial qualities to it, then he says to, to even to the church, he's not talking to the world, he's talking to the church. And he says to the church, if you're not living in this kind of love, then you're no better than a pagan. Because he says the gong and the cymbal, see, this is what pagan worship is. You go into a temple and you bang the gong or you hit the cymbal and you hit it loud enough and say, God, you better be looking at me. And the louder I get, the more you know, animated I get, then, then I'm going to get to God's attention. And he says, if you don't have love, you're nothing more than somebody who's trying to wake up a God. You're nothing more spiritually. You may think you're something, but you're nothing more spiritually than somebody who just doesn't know God at all. And he says, if you don't have love, and even, and this is hard for a lot of people because they want to say either, you know, either signs and wonders are the devil or they're of God, but the truth is that God does miracles even in unbelievers. Thank God he does that. You know, 
Love is not limited, and good things are not just limited to believers. There are good parents who don't know Jesus, and there are good teachers, and there are good you know, firemen, and there are good policemen, and there are all kinds of stuff, and there are all kinds of people who don't know Jesus. But there also are people who don't know Jesus who have experienced miracles before. Judas Iscariot did miracles. He didn't do them in the name of Beelzebub. He did them in the name of Jesus. And yet he was never a believer. You know, he never believed. He never trusted. He never gave his life to the Messiah. And yet he did miracles. You know, in the Old Testament, there are other people. There's, you know, there's Balaam, who was not really a believer, and yet miracles were done by him. Saul, Saul, it says that, that really he was just a man of the flesh. I mean, Saul is very hard to even figure out because he seems like at times he's this man of the Spirit, but at the end of his life, the, the Spirit of God has departed from him. And yet Saul had operated in miraculous ways, and yet he, he himself had no, he had, he had no uh, real uh, owning or belonging to the Lord whatsoever. Jesus says this, it's a harsh word, but it's here, it's found here. It says, many of you will say to me on that last day, that, didn't I preach in your name, didn't I teach in your name, didn't I prophesy in your name, didn't I do miracles in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, because I never knew you. And Paul's, what Paul is saying is that you know that you know Jesus when you are filled with the love of Jesus. You don't know that you know Jesus because you know theology. You don't know that you know Jesus just because you can memorize Scripture. Guess what? One of the greatest theologians of all time is named Lucifer. He knows every Bible verse. He knows them really well. He knows what grace is. He understands what grace is. He absolutely hates it. But he knows exactly what it is. He can define, he could pass every ATS exam and write papers. He could get his doctorate in theology, but he's not filled with the love of God. He hates the love of God. He especially hates this idea of agape, which is unconditional love. This is what Paul is talking about in this passage. He's talking about how you and I need to operate in something greater than the love which our old selves knew. There really are only, is this, are you tracking with me a bit here? There's really only three types of love that your old self can produce. There's no, these three types are, anybody can produce them. Any one of you can have erotic love. Okay, in Greek, that's, that's a form of love. It's a type of love. Any of you can have, and, and, and maybe you're, you're self-aware enough to know when what you feel for someone is nothing more than physical attraction. I mean, that, probably one of the most amazing things, I don't get to do this anymore, but when I remember when I was a youth pastor, and I really all they cared about is how far can we go in the dates. I mean, that, that, they want every, every week's sermon to be on how far you can go in a date. I mean, that, high school kids and stuff. Can we, can we hold hands? Can we kiss? You know, can we touch? Can we do this? Can we do that? Yeah, because everybody begins to feel without even trying. It's not spiritual. You feel erotic love, okay? So anybody can have that, and guess what? It goes away as fast as it comes. It's, a, it's stimulating, but it's never satisfying. And, and people who say they, they're satisfied, they're lying. Because the life chasing after eroticism is a wasted life. I, I watched one time this interview where this woman was talking about 
you know, her life as a, a sexual uh, worker or whatever it was and how wonderful it was and how uh, incredible it was. And then she goes, yeah, I've had, you know, five STDs and I've had, I've had syphilis and I've had gonorrhea and I have herpes and I have this and I have that. But it's great. People will lie about anything. Because, because when you don't know love, you ha- there's, there's a certain way that it has to come out. And we're going to talk about this as Paul talks about it here. And you and I have to begin to walk away and realize it's not just erotic love we're looking for. It's not even just friendship love. Friendship love is, in Greek is the word phileo. And that, that word kind of means, in a sense, affection. It's the idea, see... Even in my even in my my unregenerated, non-Christian, unbelieving heart, I could have affection. And and the deal with affection is affection is conditional. There are a lot of you that you've never gone beyond affection, and so what you have is you have like for people that like you. You have like for people who are like you. You have like for people who agree with you. I have affection with my wife, and, and sometimes I'm going along and I feel so incredibly affectionate for her, and then in five seconds she can say something and I will lose all affection for her. <laughs> and most of the time it's in the car. <laughs> there are certain sound effects that she has when I'm driving that make me want to push her out <laughs> at a high speed, you know? I get so angry with her. And it's because, you see, when I'm, when I'm motoring along on affection, it can be lost in a second when you don't meet my conditions. So the best we can have is we have this kind of erotic love and call it love, which many people in our society have fallen. They've made erotic love the god of this world. There are others of us, you know, we have affection. We like our boys. We like our you know, we like our friends, we like those who like us and who don't fight with us and all that kind of stuff. Or maybe even there's some people, they love fighting, so they enjoy the people who fight with them. <laughs> you know, and so that we like that, you know, we, we have that kind of, that kind of a love and, and we can have kind of this family type love. Now, most of us who have family type love also have family type hate. You know, it's kind of like you're my blood, I have to love you, but I don't really love you that much. Or even sometimes you, you recognize in yourself, like, I, it's amazed me, the older I get, I am so like my father, and I promised I would never get that way. <laughs> I absolutely vowed that I would, you know, sometimes I'll laugh and I'll go, is my father here? <laughs> or I look in the mirror and I say, when did that old man show up? You know, and you just, there's, you know, you have this bond, you have this, you have this, you know, family thing, and you can't get away from it, neither DNA nor nurture can get you away from it, uh, you know, it's just all of this stuff that goes on, and you can produce that kind of love, but most of us, if we're honest, even our family love is not that satisfying. It's not that fulfilling, you know, I, 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 I hope my family doesn't watch this. You know, I, I got to tell you, if I go on vacation, I don't want to go with my family. I don't. I, you know what happens? I have five kids, and, and it used to be my mom and my dad. Now, my, you know, my mom's passed away, and my dad has remarried and stuff. But when, when it was my mom and dad and the five kids and our, our spouses and then grandkids and all that kind of stuff, we would have something like 30 people together. 
everybody would have to agree and go to the same place. Like if I decide I want to go bowling, everybody's got to go bowling. And then you've got three or four of them going, I don't want to go. So you spend three hours debating whether you're going to go bowling or not. And then you guilt them into going, and they go, and then they just, look at these shoes, they're so nasty, you know? And, and like, it's complaining the whole time, and then they're going, we should have just stayed home, you know, and watched TV, because this is miserable. And it, but Lisa's family, they're so laid back, and Lisa's mom cooks great, you know? And so at 6 o'clock, she has dinner on the table, the rest of the day is all yours. So that feels like vacation to me, you know? And so you're sitting there going, I hate my family, you know? Come on, some of you have said that before. <laughs> I'm not alone in this, you know. And so the best you can produce sometimes is if you don't have great affection for them, the best you can produce is obligation. I have a tie to them. I have a bond to them. Maybe they say things like, I brought you into this world. I could take you out of this world, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing like that. And so the best you can produce are these three types of love, kind of a bond obligatory love, an affection kind of love, or an erotic kind of love. And so Paul says, look, those three don't make it. They don't cut it. That's what you can produce. Anybody can produce that kind of love. Jesus even said it this way. Anybody can love those who love them. So the greater capacity then has to be, so what happens then if I'm going to love in the way that God is asking me to love? I'm going to love in the way that 1 Corinthians 13 explains that I'm in love. Well, in order for me to love that way, I'm going to have to have a, a brand new relationship with myself. Now, that may sound weird, but the Bible says that you have an old self and you have a new self. Your old self is called the flesh, called your old man. It, it, it was tied to a nature that was sinful, that was oriented towards sin, a nature that was independent of God, a nature that might even have been apathetic towards God. But in any anyway, it is an old nature that is no longer your true nature. And so in order to love like God wants you to experience and to feel the love of God like he has for you, you have to have a new relationship with yourself, with your new self, with your new person in Christ, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Your love now has to come out of that new place. It has to come out of that, that new self. And that new self has to emerge over and against the old self. So the old relationship with self, the old relationship with self is, is, is characterized in the negatives that Paul writes about. One of the things that he says is he says that if you are living in agape love, or you're experiencing agape love, he says, then you will no longer be self-seeking. Another way to put this is actually a kind of a complex Greek uh, phraseology in this where Paul uses this. It's not easily translated in one or two words. It's more of a, a concept or an idea that maybe... Uh, is expressed this way. Love does not seek its own things. Love doesn't get its own things. See, immediately, if you think about it, this is, this is not the issue of eros. It's not the issue of phileo or obligatory kind of family love. The whole thing that we fight for in our families, I want what I want from my family. The thing that we, you know, that we like about 
friends is they get us and we don't have to work too hard for us to get what we want from them. And the big thing in Eros is all about, I want this, I demand this, I have to have this, or I will not feel this way about you whatsoever. Come on, are you tracking with me a little bit here? You see, what is the Bible saying? The Bible's saying if you're trying to love the way God loves, and if you're trying to receive love the way that God is giving it to you, if, if you don't have that capacity for it, you're going to miss out. You're going to be looking for arrows and family stuff, and you're going to look for affection, and you're going to be looking for all that stuff that you can produce in your own strength, and you're going to miss out on what is truly satisfying and, and eternal. But in order for that to happen, you've got to move some things out of, the, out of the warehouse so you can put some new things in. And those new things look different than anything you've ever had before. See, one of the biggest issues in, 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 in getting at the place where you are really loved and are loving the way you were made to love in Christ is that you have to come to terms with your demands. See, all of us, whether we know it or not, from the time we're little kids, we learn to be demanding. It is actually our demandingness that is the enemy of the healthy, holy, and holistic love that the Father has for us. Because in my demands, even, even for many of us, our prayer lives are nothing more than trying to hold God hostage so that he will meet our demands. And so we have said, many of us, because we're very much from manipulative families. We're much from hurt backgrounds. We have figured out how to get leverage with others so that we get what we want. Now, this is what this scripture is saying, that when you begin to operate in the love of God, you begin to say, I, will, I do not have to. I no longer have to in order to live I no longer have to have my demands met. And at the root of all of your demandingness is actually pride. It's a pride that says, I deserve this. You don't know how much I have suffered. You don't know how much I haven't had. You know, even, even a little bit, I, I've been doing this Daniel Plan uh, diet thing, and, and, uh, and I, it it's really has helped me. But I'm, I'm recognizing that at the end of the day, I, I have a lot of demands. At the end of the day, I'm like, I had a hard day. Boy, ice cream would taste good right now. You know? Man. Or um, one of the interesting things of, of the manifestation of demandingness that Paul writes about is he says, love is not irritable. Love is not rude. It, you know? It's not irritable. I, I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I know about me is that when I get to a place where my demands are not being met, and of course I don't call them demands. I'm far more sophisticated than that. Okay? I, I, all of us know how to be dishonest. We know how to deceive ourselves. We know how to call what is as if it weren't. You know, I'm not really angry. I just... You know, I'm just a little frustrated. Yeah, I don't really hate that person. I just don't like them very much, you know? And, and so we, 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 we try, instead of going all out for love and all out for healing, we try 
to do the second thing that Paul talks about, and that is that we, we sort of self-justify. See, that these, are the, these are the two things that he says, that if these are in the warehouse, then you're not going to have capacity for love. The one is, if you are self-seeking, you're not going to get the love of Christ. You're not going to get the love of God. You're not going to understand it. It's not going to be meaningful to you. Let me say it this way. Would you listen carefully to this? Unconditional love can never be negotiated. You can't negotiate with unconditional love. You can't get leverage on unconditional love. You, you can scream and yell at God. You can say, I'll, I'm leaving the church. You can say, I'm leaving the faith. You can do all of those things, and guess what? He'll still love you. He won't change. He'll still say, well, I accept you. I'm not leaving you. I'm going to chase you down. I'm going to follow after you. I may follow at a distance while you're being so petulant and immature and peevish, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to quit loving you. I'm not going to quit doing what's loving for you. I'm going to let you see how immature you are. I'm going to let you see how churlish, I love that word, churlish you are, how, how you know, self-centered you are, how angry you are. I'm going to let you see how depressed you are. I'm going to let you see how anxious you are. And when you get at the bottom and you go, God, help me, I'm still going to come help you. I'm not going to punish you for being what I already knew you were. I'm not going to be immature because you're immature. I'm not going to enable you because you're throwing a temper tantrum. I'm not going to give in to you just because you hold your breath. You understand what I'm saying in all this? See, and it's until you get to the place that you realize, man, I've been trying to love out of my childishness. I've been trying to love out of a factory that doesn't work. Now, why do I, you know, we could go into this at, at length, but why do I do that? Because I am hurt. I am damaged. I am a moral failure. And it's really hard to believe that anybody could love me like this. And yet, that's exactly what agape is. Agape is, is that he, he just irresistibly, uncontrollably, unconditionally loves broken moral failures. See, that's, that's grace. Grace is not for the, for the unbroken. It's for the desperate. It's for the needy. See, and in some ways, when you, you begin to see this, this idea about, I'm hitting the wrong button now. Can you advance that for me? Sometimes when you start seeing this whole idea of self-like justifying, no, that one was moving, the one behind me was not. Sorry about that. When you see this part about self-justifying, in a way, it goes all the way back to childhood, and, and, and it shows up in our adulthood in this idea of, I don't want to need anyone. I don't want to need God. I don't want to need anyone. If you ever watch a child grow up, the, child is, the children are fascinating to watch because they begin to say, no, Mommy, I'll do it myself. You ever, you, those of you can remember back? No, I'll do it myself. And then the day comes, and, they, and you used to dress them. I remember one time we had this cute bow tie for Joseph. 
It was Easter. It was a pink bow tie. It had a nice shirt. You know, he had a little jacket, a little shorts, and little saddle Oxford shoes. They were, he looked cute as could be. Somehow that bow tie never got back home from church, and he never had to wear it again, you know? You know, there's something about it as a, as a kid gets older. He's like, I don't want to dress. I don't want you dressing me, Mama. I don't want you doing this. And, it, and it's, it's hilarious in a way because they, they, they have this illusion as a child of independence. And yet very few children, if any children, actually have the ability to pay for what they think they're going to do. They're still utterly dependent on their parents, but they want to they say, I'm independent. No, you're not. You're utterly dependent. You're just faking out that you're independent. Very few of them actually move away from home, and when they run away from home, they don't do it again, usually. <laughs> you know, we used to say, go ahead, go. <coughs> Make it to the end of the block, you know, and come back kind of a thing, because it's a cold, cruel world out there, and you can make all your choices, but now you're all responsible for all of this stuff. And the immaturity of thought, of thinking, and see, the problem is it never really changes in terms of the way we look at God. See, the issue of sin in your life and my life is not our behavior. Our behavior is a manifestation of the issue, but it's not the issue. The issue is basically this. I in, in my sinfulness, I do not realize that I am utterly and completely dependent. I'm little. I'm a creature. I am dependent on God, even for the very breath that I breathe. But with the breath he gives me in my sinfulness, I curse him for it. Because I don't want to be little. I don't want to be dependent. And so then I, I began to make a life for myself where I go, I'm going to make my demands. And sometimes we call those demands our rights. These are my rights, and I demand my rights. Or we become self-justifying, and we can create religious activity that says, God, look what I'm doing for you. I'm independent, but I'm doing what you want me to do, so now you owe me. I pray more than other people. You ought to do more for me. I go and listen to that crazy man at Risen King for hours on end. <laughs> See, when, you, when your life is deceived in this way and you're like, you're, you don't know that what you're doing is, I'm going after my own will. I'm going after what I want. I'm the broker of my own needs. Then you're a fool because you're still utterly dependent on the very Father who gives you that breath, and you can yell at him and scream at him and curse him, and he's still giving you the breath and the voice to do it. And when people make up and, and they begin to have their own religion and they add their own parts to it, all they're doing is childish nonsense. They're being like that little kid who thinks he's independent, and yet mom's paying for the clothes, and dad's you know, paying for the car, and mom and dad are paying for the insurance, and they're paying for the gas, and yet he says, I'm independent. No, you're not. You're utterly dependent. And you're fooling yourself. And yet so many of us live fooled lives because we don't get it. What is Paul saying when he gives this list of what is love? He's saying the first thing you have to recognize is your old way of doing things will never work. You will always be dependent on God, even if you're fighting him. You will always be vile until you surrender. And even when you begin to say, Lord, it's an unconditional surrender. I give up my demands. 
See, now, I'm not saying that's easy, but it is that simple. When I began to realize that I could give up my demands and give up seeking after, like I, I used to say, God, I'll follow you if you do this. God, I'll love you if you do that. I'll serve you if you do this. And you know what? He never stopped loving me, even though I was an idiot. He never stopped, he never stopped showering me with his grace. He never stopped giving me his love, even though I look at And when he didn't do it, I would curse him. I would, I would, I'd have profanity towards him because I'd be so angry. In some ways, anger is a defense of what we think is our right. When people are angry, it's not, not because they don't think you know, something is important. They're angry because something important is not getting done or being done or they're not receiving something or not being allowed to do something. It's anger is a defensive measure. And I would be so angry with God because he wasn't meeting or exceeding to my demands because I didn't trust him. I didn't trust him. It's such an interesting thing as you look at this passage of Scripture because it says that sign of relationship to the new self, Scripture says you're not easily angered. You know, everything may fall apart and you laugh. You're like, I'm not, I'm not demanding it be this way. I'm willing to let it happen the way that the Lord is letting it happen. Listen, listen to this with me, okay? Love is patient and kind. What does that mean? Well, it, it means that you can't do it in your own strength. Here's what you can do, and it'll be a bad imitation of what Paul's saying. In your own strength, you can be passive and nice. There are a lot of passive people. I will, I will tell you without reservation, God does not hate drive. He gave you drive. God does not hate passion. He loves passion. God does not hate effort. He loves effort. What the Bible says God hates in you and that he wants you to hate in you is passivity and trying to earn. There are two things that will keep you from really experience the love of God. And that one is becoming this passive, hopeless, helpless, I can't do anything, Nothing's, nothing good ever happens to me, I'm going to eat some dirt kind of worm person. That is not patience, that's passivity. Patience, biblical patience, is active, it's hopeful. As a matter of fact, in, the, in Revelation, the, the translation of the word for patience is actually the idea of cheerful endurance you think you can do that in your own strength i can't i can endure but i complain the whole way i can't believe he's making me do this i can't believe I, I, that bug bite on gabe's arm i would be telling you about it for weeks can you believe the bug that dared to bite me yeah that's not cheerful endurance and and so what he what paul is talking about when he talks about love is he's talking about something that first has to be received, accepted. In other words, how can I be patient with you except that I've recognized how patient God is with me? How can I return meanness with kindness unless I remember that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me? 
having been justified by faith, I have peace with God. And if I have peace with God, I no longer need to have demands on you. It doesn't mean I'm going to passively go, I don't want things for you, I don't care about things with you. Obviously, the Bible doesn't say never be angry. God has righteous anger. There are times when there are times right to be angry. It even says be angry but do not sin. So there's a, there, even in that, there's not this passivity that just goes, que sera, sera. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is an active patience. It's an active kindness. It's a recognition that I really am safe. But I, I can tell you there's so many things you cannot control. There's so many things that are outside of your control. But the one thing that you can control that this scripture is pointing to and will give you capacity is when you begin to say, I accept and I receive the grace of God. I accept and receive that this is, I am unconditionally loved. And then you don't jump out of that unconditional love into some kind of conditional love. It's as simple for me as this. Sometimes my wife loves to say, why do you love me? And I, I think she probably wants me to say, because, you know, you're beautiful, you're the smartest woman on earth, you know, you, you, you really are it for me, that kind of thing. But really and truly, that's not a good answer. And I'll tell you why. It's because she, if, I, if I say those things, then I'm saying I conditionally love you. I love you as long as you're beautiful to me. I love you as long as you're smart. I love you as long as you're pretty, or I love you as long as this. See, the difference is, if you say, God, why do you love me? He will say this to you. I love you because I love you. Can you hear me? It's very profound when you let that come in. Say this, say it, just let those words come in. If you ask the Lord, Lord, say, let's say this together. Lord, why do you love me? Here's the answer that he says. I love you because I love you. Can you just let that in? That, see, if you can, see, Satan understands that and hates it. But if you can let that in, he go, he loves me because he loves me. Then every screw-up doesn't change that. Even when you go and you say, I'm not going to love you anymore. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to get into Eros and I'm going to get into Phileo. And I'm going to get into this and I'm going to get into that, I'm going to live over here. He still goes, I love you because I love you. And you run and you run and you're running away from your life. And you're running away from your love. Now, I know we've gone a little bit late, but I do like it when Frank has us pray at the end. So, Can you hear me this morning? I on now? Yep. The Lord's word is love is not self-seeking. I just wonder if we can do a, a prophetic act just together. Um, so Holy Spirit, come. And I just wonder if everyone can stand with me. And if you can, um, if you can just bring to your mind something that, that you demand in your life. It could be something very big, or very small. It could be legitimate. I demand respect from my peers. I demand that I pay all my bills. Whatever it is that, 
that you feel is a drive within yourself. It's a demand that you make. You can see yourself being self-seeking because of that. Okay, just think of what that is. And if you would, um, grab the chair in front of you or a chair nearby and just grip that chair. Okay, and that chair represents what it is that you demand. Okay, just hold on to that tightly. And again, um, it could be a legitimate need, but we're focusing really on our hearts right now. That that's, that's how we approach what we're demanding. Okay, that's just symbolic of where our hearts are at. In the name of Jesus, let go. Okay, now hold your hand up like this. And I declare that whatever it is that we demand comes to us as a gift from God. We are utterly dependent. Lord, our hearts are in agreement that we are in utter dependence upon you. And so we release this moment, our self-seeking nature. We release that to you now. And we can do that because we know that you love us because you love us. And we don't have to set our hearts on acquiring things from our own strength and our own demands. And we approach others now, Lord, with the same type of utter graciousness that we receive from you. We pray now just for the power to live in this moment every single day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. <laughs>